0: I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fit the Mission. If you're like me, the recent rain in the Bay Area has been a huge relief. After a summer of wildfires and a persistent historic drought, even just a few days of rain brought much desired hope that maybe, just maybe, this fire season could be less devastating. For people who live in towns directly impacted by the catastrophic fires of recent years, though, there is, of course, no immediate relief. Instead, it's a long road of hard choices, starting with to rebuild or not rebuild. And then there's grappling with the grief that comes with losing homes that have been in their families for generations. Chronicle reporter J.D. Morris visited three towns in the Sierra Fire Zone to witness how wildfires have changed the lives of their residents. One town is rebuilding from a historic fire, one was decimated just a few months ago, and another escaped catastrophe at least for now. What does recovery look like? Why have some people decided to stay, even as fires have made the danger of living there so painfully obvious? J.D., thank you for joining me again on Fifth Emission.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I want to note to our listeners, this is the very first interview that I'm recording at Fifth Emission. It's the first in-person interview I'm doing inside the newly renovated Chronicle building, and you're like the fourth colleague I've met in person, and I'm thrilled.
1: I'm so happy to finally meet you in person.
0: (laughs) Me too. So let's talk about your story. It's a really important one. J.D., you've reported on California wildfires for four years, but this wasn't the sort of intense, fast-moving coverage that we've seen in the past. You took some time to visit towns in the Sierra fire zones that have been impacted by the fires as they are in the process of rebuilding. Tell me, what did you see in these towns? And they're all in different stages. Is that right?
1: Right. So the way this story came about, it actually started with a a planning call with me and uh, several other of my colleagues uh, when it looked like the Dixie fire was potentially going to become very soon at that point, California's uh, second wildfire that crossed the 1 million acre threshold. And we wanted to do something big about that. The fire did not ultimately end up reaching 1 million acres, but it got pretty close. What I realized was that it's really remarkable and concerning that the Dixie fire started not far from where the campfire, California's deadliest and most destructive wildfire started in 2018. And those weren't the only two big fires that happened in that region of the state. There was also the 2020 North Complex fire last year which burned down the town of Berry Creek, which is southeast of Paradise. And so I was thinking about what does it mean that one, you know, vast area of the state has been hit with these historic fires, you know, 3 years apart. So I knew I wanted to go to Paradise and see that town recovering and rebuilding. I knew I needed to go to Greenville, which had just been destroyed. And then the reason I chose Quincy is because I realized that Quincy is a town that remains intact, but two of those fires that I just mentioned, the North Complex fire and the Dixie fire, burned toward Quincy and kind of around it. If you look at a map of these three towns, you'll see very clearly, you know, Paradise was destroyed three years ago. Greenville was just destroyed. And Quincy is threatened and will be threatened going into the future.
0: So you were thinking about this fire zone and you wanted to see how these different towns were grappling with either recovery or the threat of future fires. Um, And you've met folks that decided to rebuild their homes or stay in these places despite the danger. What's driving those decisions? They're making some really tough choices in this moment, right?
1: Yeah. I think for a lot of the people I talk to who are intent on sticking around, it's people that have a really close connection to that town, whether it's Paradise or Greenville. They're people that have been there for a long time. Maybe they're from there or their families are from there. And you know, that, that is their home, you know, and they have a hard time imagining themselves living somewhere else. And especially in in Greenville's case, which has just burned, I think for the people that want to stay, it's a, it's a matter of wanting to help their community recover become more resilient and, you know, not walk away at kind of its its darkest moment. Um, and of course that happened in, in paradise a lot too, but what paradise shows us is that the recovery process, the rebuilding process is a long one and a, a, a slow one. The population of paradise today is about, according to the mayor's, you know, rough estimate, 6,200 people. It was closer to twenty seven thousand before the fire. Now, to be clear, no one ever thought that the population of Paradise would bounce back to twenty seven thousand. You know, in in three years, I don't think that that was uh, ever an expectation. However, you know, it, it just shows kind of the slow recovery that's going to happen there, and I think we'll see the same thing play out in Greenville too.
0: Can you paint a picture of what Paradise looks like today? We've all seen the terrible devastation. The photos of it. What right. does paradise look like?
1: It looks. Now? It looks very different from the immediate aftermath of the campfire, but also very different than it looked, you know, before the campfire. From what I understand, it's a lot of empty lots, but there's no more rubble. Um, there are some burned trees still around town, but a lot of them have been removed. So I. A place that you know used to be kind of filled with this ponderosa pine canopy, if you will. Um, a lot of that is is not there anymore, and it's important to remember that not every home burned in Paradise too mm-hmm. was not, you know, a one hundred percent loss. So there are buildings that survived the campfire that are still there. And, you know, there are new buildings um, that have gone up. And, you know, I saw um, a a fair amount of construction activity around Paradise. Um, It varied kind of from, you know, place to place, but a lot of fresh wood going up, a lot of construction activity happening. um, And, you know, some uh, important spots in Paradise, like some of their parks, you know, that are really important to the community um, are looking really, really well, Mm -hmm. uh, really nice.
0: And who did you meet over there? I understand you met with some residents who, like you mentioned, are determined to stay in Paradise, even despite what happened in twenty eighteen.
1: Yeah. So the main person I met up with in Paradise was uh, Jason Bizard. He's a local real estate agent. Um He's from Paradise, and he received the first rebuilding permit for a new home in Paradise.
2: Paradise has always been home to my family and I. Uh, this is where I was raised. My wife was raised all my most of my family is still here in town um and this is where our daughters raised and you know we just want to try and get back as much of our life as possible and we figured the best way to do that was to move back and continue on
1: so he showed me around and you know it was a really lovely place he has this beautiful oasis in his backyard with all sorts of greenery
2: mm-hmm.
1: that you know provides a lot of space for his family to hang out.
2: I think there's days where you wake up and you can't believe you know, 90% of your town is gone. And the one thing that I love the most being in real estate is I get calls from people that say, hey, we saw the town burn down. We wanna come move there. We wanna help rebuild. That's awesome to me. I feel like that is like, gives me chills to talk about. So I think there's a lot of positivity going on right now And this town is going to be one of the best and safest towns in 10 or 15 years.
1: But I met up with other people, too. Some people that I talked to who didn't end up making it in the story. It was interesting hearing from them a lot about, you know, their connections to the town and the work that they're doing and kind of what it's been like to live there day in and day out. Also talked to the mayor and some other folks, too.
0: One part that makes rebuilding a little more difficult is the cost of insuring houses, right? Right.
1: Yeah, in- insuring them uh is is very difficult. Um, you know, for some people or at least just more expensive. The mayor told me that he was paying like $900 in insurance insurance before the fire and now it's uh like 1500. So, that's something that you're really seeing throughout the fire zone in California. Um, you know, it started in en masse, I think, after the 2017 fires in Sonoma County and in, in wine country, mm-hmm. insurers are taking a really hard look at, at homes in the fire zone. And, you know, that's why the state has had to step in and institute a moratorium on insurers uh, dropping people because of the wildfire risk. But, you know, I, I heard in every place I went to that in insurance is just getting really expensive for some people.
0: But even still, people want to rebuild. Are they previous residents, like you mentioned, who are just determined to stay in these towns? Or, or, or are these also people that are new to the towns and want to live there?
1: I have heard of some new people coming in. I do think that's happening. But mm-hmm. it, is, it is a lot of people that lived there before who want to stick around.
0: You're listening to Fifth and Mission, You can support this show and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod, or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. I want to talk about another town that was also destroyed, Greenville, which was devastated by the recent Dixie fire in August. It's a town with a ton of California history and generations of residents. How are things going there?
1: Greenville was just hit, you know, a couple months ago, so it's a sea of rubble when I went there. It was really it was really eerie going there because the Dixie fire was not it had not been declared 100% contained yet, but it it wasn't really like a raging wildfire anywhere at that point. Mm-hmm. Um so it it wasn't smoky when I was there. It was a blue sky day. If you were able to get through all of the like road work and stuff that they were doing, you could just drive up, you know. And here was this town that was completely ruined. I mean, almost every structure in sight, with some exceptions. Um, there it wasn't like literally everything burned down, but the vast majority of buildings in central Greenville had burned down. And, um, you know, barely anybody was there. It was just such a tragic and moving and, you know, like I said before, kind of eerie thing to experience. Um, but I was able to meet up with some folks that had lost homes in the area um, or other property and, and were willing to talk to me and um, tell me their stories.
0: Can you tell me more about someone you met over there?
1: Yeah, I met uh, Karen Morecambe. She lived in a house on Main Street in right in the middle of Greenville and it, that house had been in her family for generations since 1912 when her great great grandfather, a gold miner, bought it.
3: My grandmother lived here till she was like 93 years old, you know, when she died, we we ended up owning it.
1: And that's very tied to kind of the origin story of Greenville in the way that we knew it before the fire. A lot of those buildings dated back to the gold rush era. She is also really, and she's, she's one of those people who's really intent on sticking around. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think that's, has a lot to do with her family's history in the area. You know, that's, that's home for her. She really wants, She wants to be a part of the community's recovery.
3: That's what's the sad part. Fire comes, fire goes. But don't just forget that we're here. You know what I mean?
0: What did she say about, you know, the idea of rebuilding there? Did it seem feasible? Like you mentioned, you know, it's still fresh. The fire just happened a couple of months ago. How is she feeling about that process?
1: It seemed fresh. She said, you know, she was in survival mode and it was definitely hitting her hard in the sense that her it wasn't just her house that burned down her daughter and I think two of her cousins who also lived in the area lost home so Mm -hmm. it's sort of something that much of her family is going through at the same time Um, when I spoke to her I think she was also just confused about you know the information that she needed in order to Rebuild. You know, she wanted to get going and get it done as fast as possible, but it was hard to find, you know, all the information that she needs. You know, I should note that that's not uncommon in disastrous situations like that. When a town burns down, for the most part, it's not a fast or easy process to even begin the debris removal process, much less actually like building something new on the structure. You know, there's a lot of um, government hurdles that have to be cleared and a lot of big, you know, community-wide questions that need to be answered.
0: I understand that Greenville is one of the poorest communities in Plumas County, which some residents think affected the way the town was managed during and after the fire. Karen says her family's been paying taxes in the area for more than a century, and she feels like they should have gotten help. Most of the people that live here have
3: had generational of people that live here. So most of them didn't even have insurance. So I'm lucky that I have insurance. But that's another one of the big problems, too, is waiting for the government to help those people.
0: Let's talk about the towns that did stay intact. Tell us more about Quincy. Who did you meet there?
1: So Quincy is the county seat of Plumas County. I met with Joe and Greg Hagwood, a father and son duo that have lived in Quincy for decades. Joe is about 81 years old. Um, His son, Greg is the Plumas County supervisor for Quincy and the former Plumas County sheriff. Mm. So they've, you know, both kind of seen how the town has been affected by fires and in, uh, Greg's, uh, perspective, he's been very involved in, you know, the County's response. I mean, so much of Plumas County alone has burned in the last couple of years.
3: We were, uh, the meeting point for a lot of evacuees from the feather river Canyon. And then from Greenville, I housed evacuees at my house over the course of a couple of weeks. Um, the, the air quality, Uh, was amongst the worst registered anywhere in the world. Um, And this would be the second year in a row for that distinction.
1: I think people in Quincy, some of them at least, are concerned that perhaps the town might not be as lucky Mm -hmm. the next time. I mean, a lot of the land around it has burned, but there is a lot that has not burned as well.
3: Everybody has measurably come together with a common understanding and a common sense of urgency to take whatever action we we can reasonably take to start unwinding the the conditions and reversing the trends that have allowed these these devastating fires to uh to rage.
0: It's been several years of fires. Do you think residents who are acutely aware of these dangers like the Hagwoods, are they springing into action and doing more proactive tactics to protect their homes?
1: Yeah, there are efforts to certainly to um, I, th- there's much more of a focus, you know, not only in Quincy, but in a lot of other places that are threatened by fire to create defensible space to thin trees and brush, you know, around your home Um, communities, pretty much everywhere in the Sierra and other parts of California that have had some of these horrible fires in recent years are talking about ways that they can do more ambitious forest thinning, more prescribed burning things of that nature that can hopefully get the forests and the, chaparral and shrublands into more healthy conditions because, you know, with the Sierra in particular, something that we have to always remember here is that fire is endemic to California before California was colonized. Native Americans would routinely set, you know, controlled burns and cultural burns and Also, lightning-caused forest fires have always happened here. And so fire is a very natural part of the California ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And what happened was we started to suppress fires too much. That was very much a mentality after California was colonized, which is that, you know, fire was bad and that we should try to stamp it out at any and all costs. And that is one, not the only, but it is one big reason why forests in the Sierra have gotten so overgrown. Mm -hmm.
0: Listening to the stories of these residents that you met with and what you just mentioned about fires just being a part of California is there a sense of where else would we go fires are just a part of our reality and that isn't it isn't enough to drive us away we want to rebuild here
1: yeah absolutely for some people um however the intensity and the severity of what california has experienced in recent years is not good in a lot of ways mm-hmm. especially when the when i mean when the smoke gets to a point where it's you know, creating horrifically unhealthy air for days or even weeks when towns are burning down, when people are dying, that kind of fire is not good. And that's not what we want to see. But I think the thinking is that California does need to learn to live with fire in a way that, you know, a lot of people who live here currently have not historically been used to. Um, So yes, on the one hand, there is a sense of We need to live with fire. Climate change has made this, you know, kind of an unavoidable part of life here now. However, there's very much a desire in all corners to manage the forest better, to use more good fire so that we don't have these catastrophic, destructive, deadly disasters Mm
0: -hmm.
1: when. Flames do break out at the wrong time.
0: J.D., this was sort of a different story for you. You've done such important reporting for us in the past, including investigative reporting on PG&E and their responsibility in these fires. And I wonder, after spending this time with these folks in these towns, you know, watching them make these really hard decisions, what's made the biggest impression on you after doing a story like this?
1: Hmm. That's
0: a good question.
1: Something I feel like I've heard... From folks online at at certain points is sort of this, why do people live there, you know, or that, well, you know, maybe we wouldn't have Greenvilles or paradises anymore if people just didn't live there at all anymore. And that it's, you know, the community's fault for building there. I just think that that's such a misguided way to look at this Um, and spending time in places that have been affected by these fires really drives home the point that these are communities that are very important to a large number of Californians, many of whom maybe can't afford to live in other parts of the state, like mm-hmm. the like San Francisco mm-hmm. and other parts of the Bay Area. And these are places that are worth protecting. And we can't just throw up our hands and say that a lot of this catastrophe is inevitable and it doesn't have to be this way we don't have to lose a greenville or a berry creek or a paradise every year Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't accept that right
0: jd thanks for your reporting and thank you for chatting with me about it thank you J.D. Morris covers energy and climate change for The Chronicle. You can find his story about how three towns in the Sierra have been transformed by wildfires at sfchronicle.com or on The Chronicle app. Our fifth emission listener survey is closing on Friday at midnight. You have only a bit of time left to tell us what you want from the show and to win one of those three $100 gift cards, sfchronicle.com slash survey. Thanks to King Kaufman for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening.